human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with content strategist, creator, and marketing and brand consultant Michael Todd Cohen, both freelance and in-house, from CNN to IBM, and now at the helm of his own new online publication, Curiouser, Michael champions empathy unapologetically and with gusto, inserting it into his work life wherever possible and using it as the foundation for every project he works on. Please enjoy Episode 9, Empathy as Curiosity, with Michael Todd Cohen. All right, well, I am very excited to have you, Michael Todd Cohen, on the What's Betwixt Us podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I would love for us to start out, but you're, you're definitely uh, a man of many talents, and I would love for you to sort of describe the work that you, that you do and have done, because I know that you've started a new venture recently, but if you could go into a little bit, the work that you've done mostly over the course of your career, uh, and, and, then, uh, and then we can talk about the project that you started recently. Sure thing. Uh, well, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to chat. Um, yeah, Michael Todd Cohen. Some people call me MTC, believe it or not, nickname I got many years ago, and it seemed to have followed me around. Um, and so I, for the past about, you know, 12 to 15 years, I've worked in content marketing. And that really started as a career in production. Um, and I worked for a production company where we produced television commercials um, and also worked on a show for CNN called The Next List, which was a documentary series about people changing the world through, through their art or through their science. Um, I've worked for AOL, where we did live programming, uh, live news programming for them. Uh, I wound up at Digitas, which is a, a, an advertising agency, of course. And then finally, I wound up most recently at IBM, where I headed up a, um, a content marketing uh, arm for them. Um, and so what I would say has been stitched through this whole thing is being a content marketer is, is a great opportunity to explore the convergence of creativity and business need. And I'm excited that over the past 15 years, I've sort of sat on all sides of the table um, from production to agency and finally to brand. So it's been, it's been a, a fun adventure for sure. That's amazing. And, and you actually, you actually hit the nail on the head of something that I was going to ask you about, which is it seems like you sit at this really perfect crossroads um, of uh, you know the, the professional and the corporate and, and business and everything involved with that and the real um, per, the personal and and the heart of the thing and the creativity part of it and um, I'm curious to hear about the the various kinds of you know people and professionals that you work with and which ones have been, or like which rooms you've been in have been more open to ideas of empathy and which have been, have been less, which is a big question and you can kind of tackle it from whichever angle that you want. Um, it, is, it is a big question, but it's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I think uh, 
when I was working at a smaller company, I was working at um, a company called Lumina Films, which is a great production company. It's a very small shop. And that's the typical kind of production environment where you kind of spin up when you have a larger production, but the, the, the core staff is only, you know, two or three people. Um, empathy played a big role there because you're sitting with those same people every day. It's a really tiny team. You want to check in all the time. How are you? How are you feeling? Those kind of things are, are really important and, and attended to in those kind of environments. As I continued to go through my career and things got larger and larger and I went to larger and larger corporations, it's, it was much harder to, to maintain that perspective of empathy. Um, and a lot of folks look at it as, as, as transactional. You know, one group will need something from another group, but they won't think about who they are as humans or how they've come to work that day. Um, so I'd say, you know, smaller environments are easier for empathy, but when people are reminded that they're dealing with a human and to think that way first, I find that they, they tend to lean into that. And did you find that you were actually often the person to remind people of that, just given what your, um, what your role was in those rooms? For sure. I, I think one of the, the things that I bring to the table is being able to moderate situations because a lot of times in, in what we would call highly matrixed organizations. Ooh, like, I don't know this term. <laughs> so just think of it as like super complex, right? Like a company like IBM has uh, near to 400,000 employees all over the world. So, you know, and, and 15 different business units. So how do you get all of these folks to get along? And when, you know, the quote unquote creative department reaches out to legal or reaches out to sales or reaches out to, you know, subject matter experts, they're, they're not looking to have a creative conversation. And so there has to be a balance between what your creative goals are and what the business goals are. And the way to do that, in my opinion anyway, is to start on the human level first. What are this other group's goals? How are they feeling about what you're trying to accomplish? How can you help them to feel that they have a piece of this puzzle, that they have a stake in the game, and that you're invested not only in your success as a creative individual, you're invested in their success and what their goals are for the business. And without that, it simply becomes a war of, hey, I'm a creative, well, hey, I'm a business mind, we'll never get along. And I don't think that that ever has to be the case. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a big part of your role is diplomacy, really. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, and did you find, I mean, I'm curious about your, your kind of daily interactions, especially in, uh, you know, the larger companies that you were in, if you found that you had to um, sort of pivot your, your approach depending on who you were speaking with. Certainly. I mean, you know, I think every corporation uh, certainly mid to large size ones, especially, have their own language. They have their own vernacular. And a lot of times that shows up as acronyms and things like that that you learn over time. And that's cool. Um, that's sort of the baseline language. But then every single group has a different language and the way that they think. And so if you don't take the time prior to even jumping on that first call of understanding what their language is, it's almost a guaranteed mismatch. And that additional sort of research time, looking even up, even looking up individuals in a particular group and thinking, oh, maybe they have a common interest to me. Maybe they volunteered somewhere um, where I volunteered or, or they care about something I care about. And starting a meeting like that can make all the difference between getting something done and the door just being slammed in your face. Oh yeah, that's huge. I love that you brought that up, this idea of language and sort of like how to transcend the Tower of Babel that is a gigantic company. Um, and uh, 
I wonder if that is a skill that you sort of had to cultivate and develop yourself or whether you ever noticed um, if there was education through like, you know, HR or, you know, head of people or whatever the positions were, like how much of this was learned and how much of it do you think is innate? Uh, to be frank, uh, for me personally, a lot of it was learned um, the, the, uh, through, through mistakes. Um, the HR training that I received over time was a lot more cut and dry. It had to do with sexual harassment. It had to do with diversity training. All of these things are, are, are important, but there wasn't a whole lot around um, how do you relate to others in a way that makes them feel uh, included. I learned from doing. And you know, I made quite a few mistakes along the way. And I think when I was younger, I came in guns blazing. I had creative ideas. I had ways of doing things and I knew I could get it done. And so I just tried to push ahead because I felt I was right. And frankly, that's not the way to bring others along with you. And if you don't, in a large corporation, it, 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 you're really, your project's doomed to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your honesty and your humility in this. Um, and uh, it's so funny, like all the people that I've spoken to so far in this podcast, uh, I guess I've chosen well because I, I want to be like, hey, can we just multiply you and just plant you in all of the companies? Because I think that it's such a good uh, approach to just be honest and say, try by doing, take the action, <laughs> and try by doing. Um, and I appreciate the research you put into it. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I wonder specifically about... Um, content and brand strategy and marketing and these things that have to do with uh, customer facing um, projects that you do. Mm -hmm. In your process of putting together a campaign, how does, um, how does empathy or heart factor into your choices? And then part two of that question is, um, have you ever come up against pushback on that where you, uh, where you felt that you were at odds with the company that you worked with because you felt that they weren't seeing you. This is two different, totally different questions. I just realized, but yeah, that that's that's all right. Um, you know, I think, it, and and more than likely, I'll reference IBM quite a bit because they're you know the most recent experience. Um, but I, I will say, you know, a company like IBM very data focused. Um, and so that was sort of, but, but if you don't have the emotion in the work that you're creating, ultimately it's not going to resonate. And the big shift for, you know, a company like IBM and many, and several others that I've been at, um, even, even CNN, um, you have to think about what does the audience want, right? And, and in particular, B2B companies really struggle with this. There's, there's this sort of internal consensus. Well, did a subject matter expert say we needed this? Did sales say we needed this? Did marketing say we needed this? Fine, but that's not where the decision should be coming from. Ultimately, the audience have to be the arbiters of what is good. And rather than trying to decide what should go to market or not, all only internally, you should create multiple projects, push them out into the ether and let the audience decide. And I think what folks will learn relatively quickly, now of course this is based on your audience, but em emotions play a major role in decision-making. There's, there's, you know, I don't have citations here, but there's definitely <laughs> studies out there showing that you can give somebody all of the logical proof that you want, but ultimately the decision comes from a gut instinct. It comes from a good feeling saying, I want to invest my time or my money with these folks because I feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's so wise. And I'm so happy to hear that as somebody who is, 
you know, on the consumer end of things, I'm happy to hear that that thought goes into it on that end. So um, in, in dealing with, uh, with data-driven companies, I mean, have you had, um, ha has there been a project, uh, and, and feel free always to give examples and not name names or whatever you feel comfortable with, but where you felt very strongly about um, the direction of a campaign and uh, the company that you were working for was like, no, absolutely not. Uh, I'm sure there have been. Um, I, I really like pushing boundaries. I really like trying to infuse this sort of emotional pieces. And, and for some companies that's more comfortable than others. Uh, there's, there's sort of two thoughts I have about this. One is as a creative, never be attached to a single idea. Um, yeah. if, if you don't have more ideas in your pocket, you frankly, you're not, you're not doing it right. Um, because, you know, I've encountered a lot of folks who are afraid that their one idea will be stolen or taken or declined. Um, and then that's it for them, you know. Um, the other thing I'll say is, uh, I guess it was a very near miss on two occasions. One was for a major financial company. And we had designed a very emotional video around uh, entrepreneurs. And we designed alongside, uh, in partnership with a, with a publisher, um, an experiential walkthrough where they, they thought they were just doing a normal interview. And then they stood up and they walked through this art installation that had videos of the people in their life, full size, telling them how much they cared about them and how much what they were doing inspired them. And this is shaky ground for a financial company. This is very uncomfortable ground for a financial company. And they, you know, they asked all of the questions and I actually got a phone call the night before we were going to shoot. The night before from the lead on the account saying to me, from the brand saying to me, I don't know if we can do this. Uh, you know, MCC, is this the right thing to do? It's, it's very emotional. It's very outside of the bounds of what we typically do. And I, I had to just sort of swallow my fear at that moment, my own sense of doubt that any good creative is going to have. You should always have a little bit of doubt. And said, you know, given what we've talked about, this is going to push the boundaries. And anything that pushes the boundaries can and should make you uncomfortable. So the fact that you and I are on the phone right now and we're both uncomfortable, um, that means we're doing something worth doing. And that was enough to convince them to, to move forward on the project and, and they were very happy with it afterwards. Oh, that's so brilliant. I'm so glad to hear that. I, I think that that takes such guts and I love to hear that, that you push back. That's beautiful. Have you found that in working with people that you have, um, connected with them in a way that that was unexpected to you through the work that you do? I like to see people's minds changed. So, yes. so, yeah. you know, yes. And I, I, you know, it's sort of closely connected to that, to that first example would be wanting to create a video at a, at a particular brand that related back to this idea of telecom. Uh, how, why, why does, you know, a, a network matter, right? Why does the speed of a network matter? Why does being able to connect with others matter? And we pitched a story around um, the Women's March and that it couldn't happen unless we had networks. The way the Women's March started was two people in two different parts of the world that had, you know, no other way to have ever connected. And, you know, at a major corporation, they were like, no way we're telling this story. It's way too political. It's, there's no, we can't possibly do this. I had sales leaders being like, you're out of your mind. And, 
I think at the end of the day, the advantage was finding a champion of the work, somebody who believed in it and, and said, this is an important story and we're willing to push the envelope. And so I sort of aligned myself with that champion who was willing to take the risk. And what I saw happening was that those folks who were naysayers up at the front really began to soften. Um, they, they started to see that the, this, I watched this video and it made me feel something. And, and the question became then was like, oh, is, is this what this convergence is between business and creativity? These don't have to be separate silos. These can actually accomplish business goals and be creative and emotional at the same time. Um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a powerful experience. And, the, and I suppose the, the other thing I'll say here, aside from the creative work is, you know, those opportunities that we all remember before the, before the pandemic times, which was getting together for functions at work. And that can be fun or not, but I would say that like, this is such a weird thing to say, but the, the holiday parties were always a time where I saw a different side of people. Um, yeah. And that was really rewarding to see them as individuals. And, uh, you know, I'm meandering a little bit here, but I'll give you one other example. That was, I had to learn from my own hubris. And that was, I went to a major company. I walked in, I thought I knew everything that needed to happen. And there was a, a guy who had been there for a lot longer than I had, um, who, you know, was not necessarily at the same management level as me. And my feeling at the time was, well, I'm just going to steamroll this from a creative perspective. Well, we very quickly got to loggerheads and it was not, it was not a good situation. It was kind of intractable because he was in a different location as well. So it was, re it was really tough. And, and the two of us had different ways of thinking. And a manager I had at the time said, listen, uh, we'd like to fly him in because we have to do a meeting anyway. I'm asking you a favor. Could you please get together for, you know, however you want to get together, a drink, dinner, whatever, but please get together and just talk um, because we, we really were, were, were in a bad place. So I listened to what they had to say. I, I was nervous. Um, I didn't know how this was going to go down. And we did meet for a drink. Um, and over this drink, which I <laughs> found out later as we're sitting at the bar, would you like a drink? Oh, I don't drink. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so, but he had a ginger, he had a ginger ale and, and I had my whiskey and the two of us sat there and I learned about his family and he learned about my husband. And, and from that point on, Every time I got on the phone with this man, I would ask him how his wife was doing by name. I would ask him how his kids were doing. And all of that animosity evaporated. And it's not to say that it was perfect from then on, but we had a means and a framework to contextualize each other as humans. And that was the key. Yes. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Yes. I, and I, what if every single working relationship we ever had began with that? You know, Precisely. Um, and uh, I, I wonder, actually, because you mentioned the pandemic um, and how we, we aren't able to see people in person anymore and have that really important, like context cultivating thing of, you know, going to a happy hour or going to a picnic with our colleagues. Um, but on the other hand, um, when we Zoom with people, we're, maybe we're seeing them in their personal spaces. We're seeing them with their children or their pets. Do you think that the pandemic has increased or decreased empathy among people working remotely or do you think it's um it's uh at, at, like even it breaks even 
Oh, I, I mean, my hope is it's increased. And that, that's been my sense of things. You know, I've, I've been on a consulting basis for, for pretty much the last three quarters of a year. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to meet folks um, from different walks of life. Um, and my impression has been that everybody is just leaning into the fact that we're all doing the best that we can um, and finding ways to connect with each other on that level. And I think, again, going back, to an earlier comment around, you know, contextualizing folks and doing the research. This also means doing extra thinking around if I'm going to get on the phone with somebody that I haven't met before, what are some questions I can ask in a very welcoming way that would teach me something about them? And what questions can I answer uh, in reciprocity that show vulnerability on my part and signal that this is not going to be a cardboard transactional situation. I'm going to let you in and I'm going to hopefully take in some of what you have to offer as well. And take, you know, going that extra mile makes, makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I love this idea of, you know, having having some questions in your back pocket ready to go. And of course, that's like the, the reason why I'm doing this podcast anyway is for uh, this app, Zany, that, that we have developed recently, um, that is basically a, a weekly question um, that is for uh, in Slack. And so the bot, Zany, will develop, will deliver a question that has nothing to do with work uh, and have everybody on the team, teams of up to seven people, um, uh, respond and, and start a discussion channel so that you could hopefully get that context for people that you can then bring into, um, you know, the meeting rooms or the more professional settings. Because I think so often, especially when we don't see people in person, it's so easy to um, collapse them into an, a, a username on a screen um, and blow right past the the the, uh, the niceties, basically, or the, the really getting to know them. So um, basically what I'm saying is, you give me hope, and I'm really glad that you took <laughs> the extra step to do that. Um, and I wonder, because you've been, you know, in and out of corporate life for 12 to 15 years, if you've seen a shift in how people talk to each other, because for instance, now Brene Brown and her, you know, earth-shattering TED Talk was 10 years ago about vulnerability. And I think the vulnerability has come into at least my, uh, my awareness and like my circles of friends and colleagues, but I of course work in the arts mostly. And so I wonder what you've noticed if you think that corporate life has shifted more um, in the direction of, of vulnerability. I think certainly there's, there's greater awareness of it uh, as an opportunity. I also think, you know, other words that kind of come to mind in that context are, are you know, presence of mind and being present with folks. And yeah, uh, transparency is another really big one that you, that you hear. Um, I would say what I've observed is that there's a, there's, there can be uh, a divide between generations. And that's, you know, that's nothing new to say, but the reality is, you know, somebody that's been at a company for 20 years and is maybe in the baby boomer generation is going to have a different perspective on incorporating vulnerability than somebody from Gen X or somebody who's a millennial or, or Gen Z. And I, I, what I see the sort of curve going towards is going towards more vulnerability, going towards more transparency, but it does take an awareness around that not everybody was, you know, brought up through that. And I think that the key thing to really address is we need to redefine what professionalism means. Yes. Because, yeah. We're all living, full, real, breathing humans. And professionalism 
cannot mean nine to five, wear a suit, I don't know anything about you. That, that's right. not, it's just not the world we're living in. And when you think about, you know, the, the challenges we face with burnout at almost every level, if we do not take care to invest in vulnerability and transparency, humanity, uh, we can't sustain this. Yeah. Oh, so well said. I completely agree. And, and I think it is generational. And, and it's also, um, I was actually speaking to um, a woman in, uh, in finance the other day uh, about the idea of wearing a suit and how uh, in her world, everyone wears the suit. It's part of the costume. And of course, with the costume comes this sort of wall that goes up between people. Uh, whereas, you know, having lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years, um, nobody wears a suit. And it is a very different vibe. It feels like people are more approachable. And it does seem to me that the world is moving in that direction, um, which is, I think, great because the more the more our our humanity can show through the more we can offer wherever we're working completely agreed and we need and we need champions we need champions at every level to walk into these environments and you know be confident in who they are now that's easier said than done in many circumstances but but we always want to look to folks who seem comfortable in themselves and aren't afraid to ruffle a few feathers to say, hey, it's okay to, you know, to be a person walking into work in, in my you know, neat black t-shirt every day and, and maybe I have earrings and maybe I have tattoos and like that does not comment on the quality of the work I can do or the, or the, or the depth of the, of the relationships I can build. Right, absolutely. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, sure. I want to, uh, I want to turn a little bit and talk a little bit about your, um, literary publication that is brand new. If you want to explain about, uh, Curiouser. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking about it. So Curiouser, um, it's not surprisingly based around the idea of curiosity. And, you know, in my opinion, um, Curiosity is the single greatest asset that a leader can possess. And when I say leader, I mean anybody that identifies as a leader at any level inside of any corporation. You know, you don't have to have a title to be a leader. You can lead others. And I think that with this notion of curiosity, that becomes the gateway to everything. If I am, if I am curious about others, I develop empathy. If I am curious about possibilities, I develop creativity. So just looking at curiosity uh, as what I would call a renewable resource, that if we can wake up every single day curious, um, will really, the, the, the road is endless, right? The possibilities are endless. And so that's what the publication was built around. Amazing. Um, and can you give a little bit of a, a description of uh, the sorts of pieces that are found here? Um, because I've been enjoying it thoroughly. Oh, thank you for saying that. And yes, uh, the, the pieces are what I, I have a real passion for bringing in voices that you wouldn't expect to hear from and pairing those voices with business realities. So a good example of this is uh, we did a piece around when the pandemic first started happening, we did a piece around how do you think about digital events, but we didn't just go interview marketing folks who we went and interviewed were the people on the front lines doing this. And that included um, people from Marie's Crisis in New York, the piano bar that were doing live streaming. 
Uh, it included drag queens, uh, an amazing drag queen named Bitch Puddin <laughs> is her name. Uh, and she was doing things on Twitch and live switching to drag queens all around the world. And so who better to learn, you know, sort of an outside perspective of how do we do something different as a company? So that was one. Um, another one was uh, thinking about how do we listen better? And I thought about who could teach us how to listen better? And so I went to an Episcopal uh, priest uh, to talk about how do we more actively listen? Um, and then I suppose the last example I'll, I'll, I'll give here is uh, I talked to um, a biologist, a field biologist around how do we in our everyday lives become better observers? So not only what can we learn from you as a biologist observer, um, but what can we learn from animals that have key aspects of observation? So this is the kind of thing that Curiouser does is to take unexpected perspectives and bring them into a business context for people who want to innovate and lead others. I love that so much. It's almost like taking uh, several different colored lenses and putting them all over the same picture um, to see what, what sort of different aspects pop out. And um, I, I feel like that is um, kind of a, a natural byproduct of what's happening both with the pandemic and, and with social media in general is that we end up seeing so many more points of view than was ever possible before. And yes. um, I love this idea of pairing, uh, like unlikely pairings in order to learn a, a brand new perspective. Um, I wonder if you, this is a little bit, a little bit off the topic specifically, but I've been thinking a lot about awakenings recently and about, um, you know, the scales falling from eyes about, um, systems uh, that we like whether it's the economy or the healthcare system or um you know all kinds of things uh do you do you see this in your work do you see a sort of waking up take place because i for me it seems very tied to the idea of empathy and just being able to more clearly be in other people's shoes does this make sense it it, it does make sense and i think well, frankly, I think we're at a crossroads. Um, and, I, and what do I see? I see more opportunity for people's eyes being open, right? So, um, you know, I've had to reckon with myself as many other folks have around what are the aspects of privilege I was born into in this life, what are the aspects of privilege I've continued to develop over the years, albeit blindly. And so knowing that, um, what do I wanna do about that? How can I invest in giving other people opportunities? How can I sort of, you know, swallow my own pride and think about what are others' perspectives? How do, you know, maybe perhaps I haven't been coming to the table in the right way. All, all of this, these are questions that can be supremely uncomfortable, um, but are, uh, this is the crossroads that we're at. We have an opportunity. Do you want to invest in those questions and make yourself a better person? Do you want to make society more equal for everyone? Um, or, do you want to entrench yourself and try and pretend as though none of it is happening? And those to me are the two different camps. And frankly, I'm just in a position now where I can no longer ignore it. I, I, I have to um, account for others in a way that I haven't previously. Yeah, I mean, in a way it does sort of feel like um, the, the divide is getting bigger. And, and I've heard a lot of, of thinkers and spiritual people talk about, you know, 
every day getting to make this choice um, where maybe it didn't used to feel like we had as much choice, but right now to make this choice between leading with love or with, you know, your heart and leading with fear. And I feel like you can really see that on the world stage right now. And it, it, um, it reminds me of um, kind of the way I try to get myself out of a rut when I'm feeling a little bit helpless is uh, to let my curiosity override my fear. Um, and it seems like that is how you are guided as well. Would you say so? I would, I would. And I think that's a beautiful way to put it, right? I mean, if we can remain curious about things, then we're not gonna close ourselves off. It's, you know, I think about, this is kind of hard to express, but I think about uh, the way that dialogue has evolved in the past you know, decade between Democrats and Republicans. And never, never mind the fact that I don't think we should have a two-party system regardless. Right. But when I say entrenched, what I mean is whether you're far left or you're far right, the idea of somebody having a conversation with you and you simply saying, I'm not going to listen to what you're saying, is means that there's no room for progress. If I, if I can't be curious about what's making you say what you're saying, if I can't be curious about what's motivating you, then I can't find a way to address common ground. Um, so I think that that's been really challenging. The other thing that I'm, uh, I'm sort of saddened by is this idea that, you know, <laughs> that science is subjective. That this, this sort of thought of like, someone can say, you know, we, we know that the atmosphere is made up of oxygen and someone else saying, I don't agree with that. What do you, what do you mean? You don't agree with, don't agree with it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's true. It does seem like um, some people are committed to evolving and others are refusing to do so. And I'm just so, again, like I'm much more curious to see how it all unfolds than I am, you know, freaking out, frankly, even if I should be freaking out. Um, anyway, I, I appreciate you going there with me. Um, yeah, yeah. To go back to the, to go back to Curiouser, um, I'm, I would love to know what you have to say about empathy toward yourself and how you've seen that evolve based on whether you are say a freelancer, a consultant, or if you were in-house somewhere or now um, like creating your own project and being the director of your own project, how empathy for yourself has come in and shifted. This is a tough one and I will be, you know, entirely frank with you and, and anyone who's listening that I can certainly afford to be kinder to myself. I would say that one of the greatest challenges I have as a human being is what I would call and what many people call, you know, the demons that I have. I'm, I'm not worthy of this. I, you know, I'm not going to succeed. What I'm providing isn't enough. Um, you know, all of these things have been proven not to be true over time. And yet each day it is a struggle around believe in what you're doing and that folks need to hear it. And one area that's been helpful, well, two things have been very helpful there. One has been meditation. Um, my husband and I studied transcendental meditation. And so I've been doing that. And that's really helpful to kind of give myself an extra 30 seconds before I respond to something. It just gives me that, that breath to decide do you want to talk to yourself in this way today? Or can we move forward into a more positive space? 
Um, and the other thing that's been really helpful is in addition to the curiouser stuff, I've been working on literary pieces that I've submitted to various lit mags and very fortunately, uh, a number of those have been accepted and they are deeply personal. And the more personal work that I've been able to put out into the world um, has made me feel more confident in who I am because I feel like people can see me and I'm being honest with them and I'm being honest with myself. But it is certainly an ongoing journey. Ah, oh, that is beautiful. Congratulations. Uh, I have you. to say, uh, as a writer, you know, submissions, all of that is uh, similar to being an actor, which I also have done. Uh, there are so many rejections that come as part of it and each one of them is like a little a little blow to your self-esteem and so um i'm really glad that you're engaging in uh, first of all being honest in spite of that risk and second of all the idea of meditation and specifically of time of giving yourself the the grace and the benefit of even 30 seconds of taking in how you feel about something before reacting to it i think is something that's so precious and that so few people it really do in the world, especially because it feels like everything is moving so fast. Um, yes, but, yes, absolutely. Um, congratulations on, on um, being accepted and writing accepted. Um, Thank I'm you. I'm really looking Thank forward you. to reading that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Michael, I feel like you've just crammed so much goodness into such a short amount of time and I'm so grateful for it and I want to make sure that you didn't have any other particular um, stories or examples or things that you wanted to share that we haven't covered yet. You know I think I honestly I think this has been great. Uh, <laughs> you know the, the best thing <laughs> the best thing about you know interviews of this nature is that um, I, I really want to thank you as well first of all for asking me um, but second of all, for giving me the opportunity to also understand parts of myself by, by having a conversation with you. And it's only, I think it's really only in dialogue that, that we learn how we interact with others. In dialogue, we learn about what we feel truly because we're stating it out loud. And so an opportunity like this is, is, is really a blessing. I appreciate it. Thank you. That, that really warms my cockles. <laughs> um, good, good. Uh, I would love to end this conversation by asking you one of the one of the zany generated questions. So, uh, totally off topic, non work related. Uh, so today I'm going to ask you, Michael Todd Cohen, MTC, what are you a snob about? Oh, um, you know, the first two things that come to mind are coffee and whiskey. Excellent. Good together yep. and separately. What are your What are your favorites in these categories? So coffee, it's really about the brew situation. It's not necessarily the coffee bean itself. It's, it's more, I would like, you know, I like a French press over, you know, just a yucky Folgers situation. Um, or I like a very cute little coffee shop I can go into and get a coffee because then I feel like I'm getting an experience. Um, and as far as whiskey is concerned, okay, this is, this is really getting esoteric and obnoxious and I apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> it's really actually a type of brandy. Um, I, it's, it's called Armagnac, which is, is a, a French brandy uh, that's made in the south of France. And I just 
love it. Any, op you know, it's like the difference between having a nice Armagnac or having a crappy, you know, thing of brandy is, is worlds apart. And it's fun to learn about such a sort of esoteric um, concoction. Yeah. What are, what are the, like, how would you characterize it? Like in the way you'd characterize um, like a peaty scotch as being smoky, like how would you categorize, um, like what words would you describe? Oh yes, well, excellent question. And I would say it varies depending on the year that you that you get. Um, but the chief characteristic to me is if you hold a glass of Armagnac up to your nose, it smells like gasoline. It's really intense. And you're like, this is gonna blow my socks off. And then <laughs> you take a sip of it and it's far more citrusy and smooth and kind of the burn is a gentle burn, not an aggressive one. And so I've, I think my brother said it to me once and I'm not sure that this is verifiable, but I liked it. He's like, Armagnac is the thinking man's brandy. And I liked that idea. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the perfect answer to this question, actually. <laughs> Love it. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna try it now. Um, well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode nine of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To learn more about Michael, visit michaeltoddcohen.com and check out his brand new Empathy Forward online literary venture, curiouser.co. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. First, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.